All right, this is Gary Parrish again from CBSSports.com. Again, it is Wednesday, October 8th, which means we're just a little more than five weeks from the start of college basketball. The season actually tips on November 14th for those with a calendar and a desire to circle a date. And earlier this week, uh, on Tuesday to be exact, we unveiled the CBSSports.com preseason National Player of the Year and the CBSSports.com All-America teams. And my colleague Matt Norlander has been kind enough to join me to talk about those things and more here on another Ion College Basketball Podcast, which of course is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform uh, that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com slash cbssports and use the offer code FUN. Matt Norlander, how are you this morning? Man, I'm good. I woke up with uh, Van Morrison's Into the Mystic stuck in my head, which is always a good thing, so I'm ready. I'm ready to talk some preseason hoops. We are... Man, we are still technically more than a month away, and the uh, the college hoops off season is so long. But that's kind of what makes the arrival of it so much fun. So uh, let's get right into it, buddy. Yeah. So just so folks know, before we dive in, uh, we do not vote per se on the All America teams at CBSSports.com. Basically. Uh, the way it works, and perhaps we could change this someday. I consult people uh, that I want to consult, and then I, I, I request input, and then I make all of the final decisions. Matt Norlander is obviously uh, one of the people I consult, but still, I know uh, you and I did not agree on everything that I actually did. So let's start with the player of the year, Duke freshman Jalil Okafor. Agree or disagree, Norlander? Uh, 100% agree. Okay, good. Um, yeah, I, I think... Uh, you know, we saw him in person plenty last summer, summer of 2013, uh, and then he went on to uh, to play for USA Basketball and, by all accounts, had one of the most productive and efficient showings ever for a teenager uh, at that level. And I think he's just in for a massive year. Uh, tremendous, tremendous big man down low. Um, I don't know the last time college basketball had a – center that was as good in the post as Okafor is going to be. I really, I'm not sure who that person would be. I think it's been a long time. So I, I think that he is in for a huge year. It'll be, it'll be combined with Duke being typically, you know, Duke and extremely good. And, sure. and Okafor has got a lot around him, including uh, a point guard we're going to get to that, that he knows well that I think is going to benefit him tremendously. But overall his, his intelligence, his ability, um, both, you know, just generally as a big man down low and his passing ability, I think, sets up for what I expect to be uh, a clear-cut player of the year campaign. So one of the things that I found interesting, I, I went to Duke last week, and I was there for a couple of days on campus for a day. And, um, you know, just sort of uh, contrasting it with, I took a similar trip to Kansas this time last year to profile Andrew Wiggins. And obviously, Andrew Wiggins did not go on to be the National Player of the Year. He was very good, and I'll argue that forever. You know, just uh, if you'll allow me to point it out for the one millionth time, he was the leading scorer on a Big 12 championship team that played against a schedule that rated as difficult as any in the past two decades, according to the RPI. Period. New paragraph. Uh, but he, he wasn't the National Player of the Year. But I... Um, I remember being in Lawrence and talking to Wiggins, who did not embrace all of this at all. He talked a lot about, I, I just want to blend in, I just want to be a good teammate, and all of those types of things. And then I remember talking to the Kansas staff, and they, they loved his talent, they thought the sky was the limit, and all of that stuff, but they really did try to lower expectations and try to say, hey, listen, you know, it's going to take a little while. He's not there yet. I don't know if he's going to be 
our best player right from the start. And I say all that to tell you that um, when I was at Duke, literally nobody tried to lower expectations, including Jalil Okafor. Uh, Mike Krzyzewski uh, is, is on record talking about how good he is and will be immediately. Jeff Capel told me uh, that there are only two players in history that he's ever sat down with and said, you know, face-to-face, listen, you have a chance to be great. And I don't mean a great college player or a great uh, player at this school. I mean a great NBA great, an all-time great, a Hall of Famer type of guy. One is Blake Griffin, two is Jalil Okafor. And I think it's worth pointing out that last year, Jeff Capel spent every day around Jabari Parker and, you know, mm-hmm. by, his, by his own admission, didn't, didn't think this way about Jabari Parker, who was a consensus first-team All-American and the number two overall pick. And so... Uh, I just thought one of the things that I walked away from Duke feeling was even more confident that that we had made the proper pick because the coaches and the people who have been around him, Quinn Cook, Tyus Jones, literally everybody uh, thinks that he is, as you put it, in for a monster year and that there will be an adjustment period, I guess, but it won't take long. This kid's going to be dominant right from the start is what I gather. Yeah, and I actually think about 10 years from now, it's going to be one of those, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Like, we're not going to forget the fact that Jabari Parker went to Duke, and I think Parker's going to have a solid NBA career, but I think 10 years from now, we're going to look back and say, man, do you remember how awesome Okafor was? And they'll be like, yeah, and do you remember how that like Parker was there the year before? Like, I, Parker had a good year, I think Okafor is just going to clearly, clearly have an amazing year, and it is interesting how... And I think part of this is because Wiggins, for whatever reason, I mean, some of them obvious, he, you know, at this point last year, plenty of people knew who Andrew Wiggins was. The hype had already arrived. Um, Goodman was already starting to bash on him. I mean, really, the, everything had been set in motion at that point. With Okafor, yeah, diehard college basketball fans, obviously uh, Duke fans who have been following recruiting for, you know, since they were following him for you know, the past three, four years, they know of him, but... I feel like he uh, he won't really arrive in a national scope, you know, until people see him on on the screen and uh, and they can clearly see what a talented big man he is. I know we've got him as preseason player of the year. It'll be interesting to see if anyone else decides to go that route. I think some will. I can't remember off the top of my head what blue blue ribbons are out already. Athlon's out. I don't know if either of them picked him. I don't think they did, but I could be wrong. Uh, but point I'm making here is that it's. Pretty interesting and pretty cool that he and the rest of the team are kind of embracing that. But it is still, it seems like within their own little bubble at this point, it's, you know, he's not a nationally known basketball star at this point. He's going to get there, and I think he'll get there pretty quickly. But as they head into the season, outside of that campus and maybe the local media there, I I don't feel as though Jaleel Okafor is this massive figure in college basketball just yet. I think that's uh, probably true, and I think a lot of it's got to do with his position. I mean, like, he doesn't make for a great YouTube clip, you know? Um, Like, you know, Andrew Wiggins was you know, jumping, you know, above the square and dunking on people. And there was the famous um, Peach Jam YouTube compilation where he destroyed Julius Randle. And all of these things sort of uh, fed into the the hype surrounding Andrew Wiggins. And, and Okafor just, you know, he's a, he's a big-bodied true center. So he's not going to, you know, be jumping, you know, uh, uh, from the free throw line and that type of stuff. But um, there was one, um, you know, they've had early workouts. And as I was there, after I talked to Jalel and, 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 and really talked to the, the, most of the team, Jeff Capel, who, again, former Oklahoma coach, played at Duke, now an assistant at Duke, uh, pulled me aside and, like, you know, had his iPhone and had a, a clip from a, a workout 
and it was just Okafor. It was nothing it was spectacular, except that you never see it at the college level. Okafor catching the ball in the post against. I, I'm not sure. I don't want to. I don't want to put anybody in a poster who doesn't deserve it. So I'm, I, I'm not sure who it was, but it was whoever happened to be guarding uh, Jaleel in, in this particular workout. And he he had backed him down so deep that he turned around um, immediately without hesitation and just and, and crunched it on the defender. Just jumped, yeah. just jumped up and dunked on him like, you know, back to the basket, turn around, dunk on you. And it was just like, wow, like if he's already trying that um, against people of comparable size, then um, that's one mental hurdle that guys sometimes can't get past. Like, OK, you're good enough to dunk on people. Go do it. Like that was one of the things. I know Bill Self struggled with Andrew Wiggins. Like, hey, kid, go jump over people. You can do that. And and, and Wiggins wouldn't do it often, at least early. And and obviously not in the NCAA tournament for a variety of reasons. But but Okafor seems to, that's already clicked for him. And and I thought his quotes that he gave me were remarkable. Like you said, um, you know, I, I don't know how many people are going to, you know, push for Okafor to be a preseason national player of the year because some folks just have this, uh, line that they draw in the sand where they're not going to give it to a player who's quote never been in college yet but um, you know and I've explained this a million times these these things are meant to be uh, predictions more than uh, awards for accomplishments at least in my head different people can yeah. do them different ways but in my head I want to try to predict what a postseason team might look like uh, I can explain it every year and I've explained it every year and yet some people will still say you can't give awards to somebody who's never quote played in college and so rather than me defend it I actually asked Jaleel I said I said listen here's the deal when I do this here's what people are going to say counter that counter argue the idea that you ha- can't be a national player of the year because you've never played in college and here's what he said when I step on the court, it really doesn't matter if I'm a freshman or a senior. It's basketball, and I've been playing basketball my entire life. So I feel extremely confident about going out there and playing against anybody and feeling unstoppable and being just as dominant as I've always been in my previous years of playing basketball. So somebody saying I can't be National Player of the Year because I'm a freshman is kind of ludicrous to me, end quote. And um, to me, listen, that's extremely confident. But it didn't come off as cocky. It came off as 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 a, a young man who's very sure of himself and more to the point a young man who is uh embracing uh, these expectations uh, mike shishevsky and jeff capel have set him down and said kid you don't have to win all the awards but it'd be great if you did because it would make our team as best as it could possibly be and he embraces that and i will tell you i've talked to you know throughout the years uh, pr- practically every elite uh freshman who has entered college because me transitioning to CBS uh, was the uh, the same time that the one and done rule was put into place. And so I think I actually moved to this job the same year Durant and Odin and those guys were getting ready to enroll. And so starting with Durant, Odin, and going on through the present, I've talked to all, you know, most of the the elite, elite freshmen who are entering college. And I don't remember anyone. And I think this is important. At least it is in my head. I don't remember any of them actually embracing the expectations and 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 explaining in in pretty good detail why they think they're ready for it as well as Okafor did except for maybe Kevin Durant. Durant and Okafor have been the two most certain freshmen I've ever spoken with um, about these types of expectations and um, if you're sounding like Durant uh, at this point in your college career I think that's a pretty good sign. That is a good sign. Now Durant was I was obviously still, I was plenty, plenty uh, infatuated and invested in college hoops, but I actually wasn't 
writing about the sport at that moment going into his season do you remember was he considered like he so he was considered durant was considered a potential like top three player because i remember when he exploded like especially during that january early big 12 season like that's when like he truly arrived he was on the cover of sports illustrated all that but actually i don't remember that well going into that season who who the preseason pick would have been and what the thought on Durant was. I know Texas was considered a really good team, mm-hmm. but I just don't uh, – I can't clearly remember what the perception of him was. I bel- I can't remember at CBS Sports – oh, I, I, I actually, I think I can. I think Joe Kim Noah was the preseason player of the year. Okay. Okay, because that was when I, I – I hope I'm not getting the years mixed up. Um, I'm sure somebody will tell me if I am. But I believe um, – no, yeah, this is true. Okay, so Noah Horford, the second Florida championship team, um, was the same year that Odin and Durant entered college because they played the national championship game, Odin and Noah and Horford, right? Yes. Okay, so that was the same year. Maybe Odin, yeah. Yeah, okay, no, I think Noah was the preseason national player of the year, but I know that I had Kevin Durant as a first-team All-American preseason. Okay. And and I I think I was sold on doing and I had Odin as well. I you know I don't know what the teams were, but it was Noah Odin, um, uh, Durant, and then whoever else. But I I remember leaving Austin because I went down there and I spent a couple of days with them um, in Austin, and I remember leaving there going, my God, this kid is uh, first off really really confident, really sure of himself. But beyond that, um, you know I was on the uh, I was in the Texas basketball facility. And I remember talking to a, a, not just the coaching staff, but people around the team, like trainers and uh, uh, nutritionists and, and grad assistants and people like that. And, and one person in particular said, um, hey, do you know what we already nicknamed Kevin? And I'm like, what? And now keep in mind, back then, Odin had gotten all of the attention leading up to their freshman years because Odin was supposed to be the next great center and all of those things. So Durant, I don't want to say it was an afterthought, but he was not talked about nearly as much as Odin was talked about. And I said, what, what, what is the nickname for, for what? What have you nicknamed Kevin already? And they said, WTF. And I said, really? And they said, because every time you watch him, you sit there and go, what the? Like, and, and people told me, I, like, this one guy in particular, he said, he said, Gary, I've been around basketball players here at Texas for a long time. You know, I've seen the LaMarcus Aldridge's and a bunch of really good guys. I have never seen anything like this kid. I have never, like, it is, it is freaky and unbelievable the stuff he's able to do. And so I think it was just a matter of people had to see him um, before they really, really believed it. Um, you know, and you got to remember, this was pre-Twitter and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, so the YouTube videos didn't really go viral like they might today. But uh, the people who had seen Kevin really thought highly of him. And, and more to the point, to wrap this back around, um, he, was very assure, he was very sure of himself and very confident that he was going to be able to live up to the expectations. And I don't remember another kid since then being that confident, um, except for Jaleel Okafor. He was, he was really, really uh, I- impressive. So the whole, entire first team at CBSSports.com, uh, All-Americans uh, is as follows. Uh, point guard, Fred Van Vliet. Um, off guard, Marcus Page from North Carolina, obviously. Small forward, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson. Then Montrez Harrell at the four and Jaleel Okafor um, at the five. Now, before we get into this, I had a few people ask um, why Frank Kaminsky isn't on the first team. And there's a pretty simple answer for that. Again, different people do these different ways. Uh, but I've always... Um, decided that I'm not going to have like five guards on a team or three centers on a team. Uh, I'm going to try to make a, an all American team actually look 
like a team you could put on a court. And so when I decided to go with uh, Okafor and Harrell at the four and the five, in my head, the way I do it, there just wasn't a place, a position uh, for Frank Kaminsky on the first team. So that's why Frank Kaminsky wasn't on the first team. Uh, simply put, uh, I didn't choose necessarily Rondé Hollis-Jefferson over him. I chose Montrez Harrell and Jalil Okafor over him. Either way, I know you, Norlander, wouldn't have had Kaminsky on the first team regardless. You told me that. but where, did. Yeah, but where's your main issue on the first team? Again, Van Vliet, Page, Hollis-Jefferson, Harrell, Okafor. Uh, main issue is Hollis Jefferson. Um, he's going to get, to, he's going to be a first rounder next June, barring any sort of weird injury. Uh, he's tremendously athletic and talented. Uh, I think he's going to be really solid and I think he'll benefit from having a terrific point guard in TJ McConnell. Nick Johnson won't be around to take as many of the shots. I just don't think that Hollis Jefferson is going to end up being as, productive or important as Stanley Johnson, who I actually would have put on the first team. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we, we differ in two, in two areas there. Um, I would have put Stanley Johnson there. I think, I think, um, I, I don't know. I kind of wavered back and forth with that. If not him, I would put Decker, Sam Decker, by the way, for anyone listening that didn't catch it over the summer, he looks like a freaking Marine. Now he is, redefined his body. Um, I think Decker is in for a huge year. Uh, I think the other issue with Wisconsin is, you know, they're clearly going to be the best team in the Big Ten. If they did not win the Big Ten, I think we'd all be pretty surprised. They're set up to uh, to have an awesome year up there in Madison. And uh, Decker and Kaminsky both potentially could have really, really good years. But when you do that, do you kind of cancel each other out from being a distinct, clear-cut first-team All-American? Um, I don't know. But I would have went Decker or Stanley Johnson. Uh, I just don't think Hollis Jefferson will have the production at the end of the year. That's the only one, I think, of all of your selections, first, second, and third team, I think Hollis Jefferson is the one where I disagree the most. That's fair. Um, listen, I, I I saw all the things you saw with Decker this summer out in Las Vegas. He He looked tremendous, and I think he might be great. And I think he and Kaminsky maybe do hurt each other a little bit. And here's why, in my head. Um, Okay, so Kaminsky had the better year last year. That's undeniable, right? Mm -hmm. Except I think Decker might have the better year this year. I think Decker might might end up being Wisconsin's best player. So I was, like, um, conflicted on this. Okay, do I really want to put Decker on the first team when it's clear that he wasn't the best player on his team last year and the guy who was the best player on his team last year is back, right? Is that weird? Does that, and again, sometimes I just get hung up on things that a normal thinking person wouldn't get hung up on. But I was like, okay, I think Decker might end up being the best player on Wisconsin, but he wasn't the best player on Wisconsin last year and the guy who was is back. And so I, I, I guess my compromise was I will throw them both on the second team. I'll put them both on the second team together. Um, Call it even and, and let them sort sort it out. But I wouldn't be surprised if if one and maybe even both, particularly if they're as good as they're supposed to be as a team, uh, could end up on the on on the first team. With Rondé Hollis Jefferson, completely understand. I figured that is where the uh, I figured that's where the, the the most sort of question marks would come. Like how you know a guy who didn't even average ten points per game last year on a first team All American. Here would be my my thought uh, behind that. First off, I think Arizona is going to be awesome. All right. I think they're going to be uh, better than they were last year. And last year they were terrific, especially in, uh, before Brandon Ashley got hurt. And so when you are a team that is as awesome as I think they're going to be, um, like a, a, a preseason top five and, and probably there all year long, 
are right around there all year long, then then your best player is is going to be in contention for for first team All American honors, just like Nick Johnson was last year. And when I talk to some people I trust around the Arizona program, and 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 ask a very simple question, because Stanley Johnson was awesome for USA Basketball this summer, so I you know you go into that going, all right, um, Stanley Johnson's terrific and and certainly the better pro prospect, but who's going to be the best player on this Arizona team this year? Um, some people I trusted close to the Arizona program told me that they would they would be surprised if Rondé wasn't their best player. And so that pick is rooted in the idea that I think Arizona's going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. And people I trust think Rondé is going to be the best player on that team, even if Stanley's the best prospect on that team, which could be, um, I don't know, a little comparable to the 2007-8 the Memphis team where Chris Douglas Roberts was the best player but Derrick yeah. Rose was the best prospect. Again, I don't know if it shakes out like that exactly, uh, but that would be my rationale behind Ronda Hollis-Jefferson. Uh, and CDR was the second team at the end of that year? Or did no, he, he make first team. team? He CDR, was first team, yeah. yeah. He was first team, yeah. And Rose, um, Rose, I think, was a third team or honorable mention in most places. So, that's wild. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Well, you, uh, you know, people don't, we're not going to get off on this, but Derrick right. Rose was not awesome until about middle right. of February. And then Correct. if you go look at his NCAA tournament numbers, they're vacated now, of course. But if you go look at you can still find them. Like, <laughs> he had one of the great NCAA tournament runs <laughs> in recent history. Like what he did in that tournament was off the charts, right? right. And yeah. so, um, you know, I, I guess just always your best pro prospect isn't your best college player. And, and that might actually be the case at Arizona this year. We'll see. Uh, yeah, I, I love Stanley Johnson's game. Uh, I think Arizona is going to be consistently a top five team. Um, I just ultimately think he'll be more productive, but we'll, we'll see. As for quick on Kaminsky, actually, I'm not sold on him, uh, definitively uh banking him banking on him being uh even a second team all-american he can definitely do it I and mean, he's I, I i followed the kid around interviewed him at the final four last year a great interview really good kid good story uh plenty of people know it now you know him getting cut from his aau team essentially and all that stuff um i want to see how he handles uh, the fame and expectation uh, of being the big guy on Wisconsin, uh, being a targeted guy, uh, I think he can do it, but I just have a little bit of reservation. So I probably actually would have put Kaminsky on the third team. Um, you want to you want to reel off uh, your second team here? Well, well, I, I don't want to get too much into all of them, but I am curious. Yeah. Like uh, you've got that, you know, the first team, the second team, and the third team. Um, yeah. We we can go through it really quickly if you want, but I'm curious, who is the guy that we left off? that we're going to end up regretting leaving off. Because um, for those who don't know, um, you know, the AP, Associated Press, puts out an All-American team every single year. And um, and for the second time, just the second time since 2003, nobody from the first, second, or third team actually returned to school. They either all turned pro or exhausted their um, eligibility. So I don't know that there's going to be a consensus All-American team in the preseason or even a consensus All-American in the preseason, although I think Okafor will probably uh, serve as that. But the second team is Juwan Staten, Karis LeVert, Taryn Petway, Sam Decker, and Frank Kaminsky. Third team, Tyus Jones. He's the freshman point guard at Duke. Ron Baker, Stanley Johnson, who's been mentioned, freshman at uh, Arizona. George Yang at Iowa State and Carl Towns at Kentucky. Who did we leave off that's going to make us look dumb? Oh, man. Uh, Well, I had a few nominations. Okay. Because, like, last year, I don't think Sean Kilpatrick was on most people's, you know, all preseason All-American teams. And yet, at the end of it, he was a first-team All-American. Right. Um, I think the player – okay, so I'm going to – 
fake my way through this or, or kind of cheat the question. I think the player that we don't have on this list on any of our teams that is going to have the best the player I think will average the most points that isn't on this list is Marcus Foster at Kansas State. Okay. I think he will he, I think he will come dangerously close if not eclipsing 20 points per game. We don't have him on the list. I think the player and Doug Gottlieb uh, expressed this in an email to us. I think the player that could really just kind of have one of those seasons where he is so clearly uh, the star of the team scoring could hit some big shots that we don't have on this list. And I I didn't even nominate him, but I did mention him in our correspondence email is Kevin Pangos at Gonzaga, who's one of those players that feels like he's been there for eight years now. No. It's funny how that always happens with white guards, by the way. I but remember anyway. his first game. We were in New York yes. like, getting ready for the Champions Club. It was like a midnight game or something yes, like that. Yes, he went wild, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, I remember texting uh, Mark Few, and I was like, oh my God, what what is going on? Like, who do you got? And he was like, calm down. And that feels like it was 20 years ago. Yes, it it actually it truly does. Those would be my two nominations. But I also think that you know Perry Ellis, by nature yeah. of us not even including him. How about no and, Kansas players? Which is crazy, I, right? That is crazy, and I and I, yeah, and and I just think Perry Ellis is worth a, a mention here. I, I'm kind of regretting us not putting him on them. So those would be my three responses to your question. I think um, I, I certainly agree. And, and Doug, Doug emailed that uh, we were going back and forth with, with Gottlieb on uh, email and he mentioned Pangos and I, I, he, Pangos checks the boxes that, that I typically care about. I don't, I never care about a guy putting up big numbers for a bad team. That just doesn't resonate with me. But Gonzaga is going to be really good this year, like yeah. really good. And I know people like, well, you say that every year and then they get in the tournament and they get knocked out. I got it, right? Gonzaga is going to be really good this year. I mean, you look at the roster and, and they've got a chance to – you know, I, I am not putting them in the Final Four, but they got a chance to get there. They got that kind of roster and experience. And Pangos is going to be their best player, right? And so, if you're the best player on a, on a Final Four caliber team, then then you're certainly in play for All America honors. So, I think, you know, I'm not going to undo anything, but we might look back and go, uh, do you put Pangos in front of Tyus Jones or even Jawan State? And I think Pangos could could reasonably be a preseason you know, at least second team All-American. So yeah, that that's one exception that I think we, I don't want to say regret, because I'm not going to regret any of this stuff, but... You not, stand your ground, buddy. Not, not nearly as much as I regret so many other things in, in this world. Uh, All-American teams are not even in the top 40 on a list, but I think Pangos um, uh, makes a, a lot of sense. And then, you know, no Kansas players. Uh, somebody from Kansas is going to be really good. Somebody's going to be Kansas' best player, and Kansas is going to be awesome. And that's going to put them in play uh, for All-American honors. The thing is with Kansas is that, you know, Perry Ellis is consistently good, rarely great. And that might just be because he's surrounded by great other great, like, legitimate lottery pick-type guys every single year. Um, you wonder if it's, a, if it's a breakthrough situation for Wayne Selden. You know, how's Kelly Oubre going to be? How's Cliff Alexander going to be? Um, just, I, I don't, I, I think Alexander might struggle more adjusting to the college game than say Okafor will. I, I recognize not everybody agrees with that, but, but th that's my opinion at least. Um, Ubre might end up coming off the bench at the beginning of the year. Selden might not be, you know, one of the top two talents on his own team. And then Perry Ellis could just be what he is, which is a really solid, nice college basketball player, you know, fringe NBA guy, but, but little more. And so it, it, I was very aware when I hit publish that I had no Kansas players on it. And I recognize that given 
how good Kansas is certainly going to be because they are every year. At the end, we're probably going to have a Kansas player on it. But I just didn't know which one to throw on, you know? Well, yeah, yes. And now we're running into a similar situation with uh, Kentucky. Sure, because, yeah. I mean, listen, I don't feel like I'm spoiling anything because we had our preseason top 25 and one. Kentucky is more than likely going to be our preseason number one team. Sure. And yet we only have one player from that team on this list, and it's uh, Carl Anthony Towns, a third teamer. But... You know, when I tweeted out the list yesterday, I had a couple, you know, you know, predictable, like how could you only have one Kentucky player and he's a third teamer? Here's the thing in, you know, I, I defended you and I kind of assumed this is what you might have thought. And if, if it wasn't this, let's clarify mm-hmm. it. But John Calipari is on the record saying he is going to liberally disperse minutes and try and try this by committee, 10, 11 man roster. He brought in an analytics director, you know, one of these tempo free guys to kind of look at how his players are doing and, and how they're being efficient and getting away from traditional stats to kind of help the cause there. So when Cal is even saying, I'm going to spread out the love and, and we'll see if that remains true as they get, you know, to January and February, but nevertheless, he's going to try it. I think with all the talent they have, I think it's hard to say who is definitively going to come in, stand out. Like, yeah, you know, if we think one of the Harrison twins could eventually pop in and have a huge year, I think that's possible. But it's it's not a gimme, and they have a loaded front court, so it's 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 one of those weird things where it's tough because this is also a Kentucky team, unlike one we've seen before. We kind of say that every year, despite the incoming, you know, slew of freshmen. This one does seem like to be a different mix, and so that's why it's hard to get more than one guy on the team. And then, and then at that, are any of those guys, like what we talked about with Kansas and with Arizona, are they going to be productive enough to stand out to be a true first-teamer? Yeah, I mean, li- listen, all of that, right? And um, A, on your point about John bringing in an analytics guy to present new stats to the players is just another example of his genius. Uh, he understands that when, if you're going to play this many guys and you start comparing in a traditional sense, box scores to box scores, the, his own players are going to realize they're not scoring as much as the kids at Duke and at Kansas and at North Carolina. They're not playing as many minutes as the kids at Duke and Kansas and North Carolina. And it's going to be very easy for frustration to set in. Not everybody's going to be happy, but if you can present them numbers that make it look like, hey, we don't care about points per game. We care about points per minute, you know, um, and then start comparing. He'll have them compared points per minute to what Okafor's points per minutes are. And he will create an entirely new, like, box of numbers for these kids to look at to distract them from the idea that they're only playing 18 minutes per game. And and I don't know that it'll work, but uh, it's not surprising that he's going that route because he's always trying to think of a way to to um, either um, eliminate problems before they before they uh, present themselves or alleviate them um, after they do. Uh, to your larger point, um, how am I supposed to know who's going to be great for Kentucky when John doesn't even know who's going to be great for Kentucky? You know, like I think Carl Anthony Towns is going to be their best player. That's why I put him uh, as the lone All-American from Kentucky. Uh, but I don't think John right now knows um, who his best players are going to be. I'm certain he has some ideas. But if you are talking openly and publicly talking about playing 10 or 11 guys, that means – and platooning them even, you know, five for mm-hmm. five, that means you don't know who's great yet. Or, or you don't know how – the truth is they're probably all really, really good, and you just don't know which way to go. But uh, I think he'll start the season that way. Eventually he's going to ride somebody the same way they rode Julius Randle last year. And eventually that whole platoon thing, I don't believe it will exist. You know? Neither do I. Yeah, right. I mean, eventually, he ain't made for that. Like, you know, he's – he's going to want to play his best players. And I think that's a way to, you say what you need to say in October, 
because it eliminates any problems in October. And then the games start and you adjust and you deal with it the best you can. But um, right now, I mean, okay, Dakari Johnson started last year toward the end of the year. Willie Cauley-Stein was coming off the bench. How do we know Willie Cauley-Stein doesn't present himself as a starter again? Uh, what about and, and then who plays beside whoever's in the middle? Is it Trey like is Trey Lyles going to be their best player or um, or a reserve playing eleven minutes a game? Like we really don't know right now. Is 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 um you know who's going to play point guard? You know um, are, are they going to go with with uh, a freshman and move Andrew off the ball or is Andrew going to play it and and then a freshman is going to be buried on the bench like. We don't know right now, and so I think Towns will be ultimately proved to be their best player. That, that's that's my opinion after watching them in the Bahamas and, and talking to some people around the program, uh, but we'll see. But it is weird to look at Kansas and Kentucky with all of the talent they have and, and, um, and, and all of the success we think they will have, and yet between those two rosters, there's only one guy on a first, second, or third team uh, All-American team. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. So it, if you take a, a macro look at it, I think it looks weird. But then I say, okay, who who got left off that deserves, definitely deserves to be there? I don't know that there is a, an obvious answer. Any more than there's a Kevin Pangos answer or a Marcus Foster uh, answer. Let's do some news and notes presented by Squarespace. There's one story that you've been writing about, Norlander, a young woman whom Alabama was blocking a waiver uh, for her to return home and play at Seton Hall. Um, the story has gotten a lot of attention. Alabama seems to have relented uh, earlier this week. You've been writing about it. I'll let you tell a story. Yeah, I believe, and I hope I'm pronouncing her first name right, but I believe it's Daisha Simmons. That is exactly, that. by the way, why I wanted to let you tell the story, because I, <laughs> I actually spent 20 minutes this morning trying to find the correct pronunciation of her name. So uh, I was like, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to let Norlander dive in. <laughs> that, was a, that was a pros lead in there. Yeah, um, I believe it's Daisha Simmons. And uh, I got to tell you, it is actually uh, oddly uplifting that a, a female basketball player's eligibility story could carry this much momentum and press and headlines over the course of a week. Um, hey, I think it's a good thing because ultimately the school, uh, her former school, Alabama, kind of did her wrong. And and now we're getting a bit of change of course here. It, we're recording this here on Wednesday morning. And on Tuesday night, Alabama sent out a press release that said it would uh, support the NCAA reconsidering her eligibility case. Uh, if you're unfamiliar, really quick here, this is a this is a girl who was a four-star recruit out of high school. She went to Rutgers for a year. She grew up in Jersey. She ultimately transferred to Alabama, played there the past few years, averaged you know about 14 uh, points and over five rebounds last season. Just a, a quality player, like a, a really solid SEC starter quality, you know, borderline second, third team conference player, that kind of deal. And um, she did not get into Alabama's Masters of Business, Business Administration program, her MBA. So she uh, she opted then to uh, transfer to Seton Hall, both in conjunction with that and the fact that uh, her family is facing some illnesses. Alabama claims when she looked to transfer, which was in late May after Bama's roster was kind of already set in stone and they had filled their scholarships. Uh, when she looked to do that, Bama claimed she wasn't completely forthright or, or clear with the reasons that she wanted to transfer back home. Uh, but there are reports from June that show that uh, she's clearly talking about her issues with her brother who is facing kidney disease. He's on a, a kidney waiting list. And she actually is the one now that drives him for dialysis appointments practically every day because her mother's holding down a few jobs. Her mother is also apparently just generally worn down, sick, fatigued. Um, and so with all of this, you know, she wanted to get back, finish her final year of school. 
uh, play this year immediately so she can, you know, ideally graduate. And whether it's, you know, playing, uh, giving a shot at the WNBA or, or in the, getting into the work field as soon as possible, help her mother uh, and her family with, with financial costs. Um, so for the past five months, really, four months, uh, this has been a battle between Daisha Simmons and Alabama. It really started to pick up steam last week. Alabama dug its heels even further because it basically said the NCAA ruled on this. The NCAA said, hey, she can play, but it's going to be next year. Alabama put the onus on the NCAA, but people continue to uh, rightfully attack Alabama. Last night, Alabama released a statement saying, now that we know the full details. And by the way, uh, Simmons hired an attorney uh, that was threatening litigation and Title IX uh, lawsuits. When this happened, Alabama said, listen, we will not block her um, her want to be eligible this year. So now Alabama has then gone to the NCAA and said, listen, we're off it. She can play at Seton Hall this year if she wants. So now uh, Bama's absolved itself uh, outside of, you know, the uh, the oh, yeah, now you did it cynicism from from the peanut gallery. Uh, and it's actually in the hands of the NCAA, which already ruled on this case. Um, but now Bama is saying, no, you can go back. We're allowing it. So the NCAA will now decide if this, uh, girl, Daisha Simmons can play this year at Seton Hall. It's her final year of eligibility. I would suspect that she will get that. If she doesn't, it will be, uh, something of an uproar again, but that's where we stand. And of course, you know, we've got just about over a month to go till the season starts. So the NCAA will have to untypically be, uh, you know, pretty, quick with this ruling we'll see when that comes down but uh again it was pretty surprising to see the eligibility case of a of a female college basketball player Gen- i mean we're talking like keith olverman taking time on his sure. show to talk about this billis of course billis was relentless with it and uh and you know plenty of national outlets hit on it as well so that's kind of the story we're at and uh it ended up being you know really really until this preseason stuff came along for the past seven days it was the biggest college basketball story out there and you know I think we've reached a point where people are really into student athletes' rights, and mm-hmm. and that's why this gets so much traction. Anytime you can fight on behalf of a student athlete, um, you you people there, there's at least a, a certain segment of of people with relevant voices who are willing to do that. So I I think honestly it has less to do with women's basketball than it does with that. Like I, I think this could honestly it could have been a, a a men's soccer player. It could have been anybody. And um, if it was, it's a, a student athlete's rights issue, then if the right voices are made aware of it, um, then it can become a national story. Like this one became a national story. And and I'm 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 glad that it it, it unfolded the way it's unfolded, and and that Alabama was, let's be honest, forced uh, to to change course because they were they were I think even by their women's basketball coaches own admission taking a beating over this which I think is the the larger lesson here I'll ask you can you think of a time in recent history where a school took a hardline stance with a student athlete and came out of it looking okay like it is always you can't it is yeah. always gonna hurt you in the end in a way that it that that is that, that it's better where you just avoid it. And so, like, when are folks going to learn? Universities going to learn? I mean, smart people running athletic departments and universities and, and basketball teams and any teams are going to learn that you can try to, to restrict and you can try to be vindictive um, with a student athlete. But ultimately, if the story gets into the, uh, the right hands, 
you are going to come off looking awful and you're going to ultimately have to relent. And if you know that's the case going in, what are you even doing? Exactly. It's a PR nightmare. You can't win. The The athletic departments at these universities never look good. Even now, listen, uh, I still, to a certain degree, associate Phil Martelli with the yeah. fact that his athletic department refused to let a player transfer and be immediately el eligible at UAB. That's one of the most uh, infamous cases of this kind of ever, and it happened a few years ago. You cannot win. Um, I understand uh, from the inside, these coaches and administrators are dealing with situations and, and, and certain happenstances that don't get into the press. And you know what? There are probably conversations that happen that say, I'm going to return, coach. I'm going to return. And then the spring comes and they don't. And you feel burned and you feel like there's a side to, to your story to be told. But ultimately, you know what? If, if a player wants to transfer somewhere and there isn't and the other thing is, you know, coaches are paranoid about tampering, like paranoid that everyone's trying to steal their players. Um, if there's not tampering involved, you got to realize that you're just never going to win. Like it, from, from just from a uh, from the public standpoint, you're, you're going to look terrible. Um, Alabama knew this, you know, even as early as Monday, Alabama said the case is closed. The NCAA has ruled on this. And then less, you know, by Tuesday night, things had changed because they realized that there was actual, you know, I don't know how legitimate the threat of uh, that Title IX lawsuit um, would have been had it gone to court. Uh, but that certainly enhanced the profile of the case. And it wasn't slowing down. Um, so it realized that it had to, it had to do something here. Or it was just getting absolutely beat on. So, well, that's the other thing. Like, what? Why on earth are you going to get into a lawsuit over a women's basketball player? Like, who cares? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, the whole thing is so it, it's just stupid. And listen, I I this is the one thing that when I talk to to college basketball coaches about, we cannot reach any common ground because they will still tell you guys who I like and who I think are smart will say, listen, you know, you just, there's too much tampering going on, you know, kids kids transferring without restriction is wrong, it, it, it destroys your program, and it, and, and I, I get all of that. There's too many of them that say the exact same thing, that it would be silly for me to dismiss it, right? I, I, I acknowledge that that is a reality, at least in their heads. Um, my counterpoint to all of it is I don't care. I don't care how difficult it makes your job. In any other, practically, in any other walk of life, you are not allowed to restrict somebody the way college coaches are 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 sometimes allowed to restrict a student athlete. Um, you know, if your girlfriend wants to leave you, even if she was tampered with by I'm, your, I'm blocking this transfer <laughs> by your best, even if it's your best friend who was transferring or who was tampering with her, and then she decides she wants to leave you because she's decided somebody else is a better opportunity. Guess what? That happens to all of us at some point in our lives, and there's nothing we can do about it. The idea that you can be uh, vindictive to the point of saying. Yes, that other place might be a better opportunity for you. And yes, that other place might be um, um, uh, the place where you actually ought to be. No, you can't go. Even though you are a, uh, you know, as we like to, to describe you, an amateur athlete. The idea that unpaid um, amateur student athletes can be restricted by, in lots of cases, millionaire college basketball coach, I just think is fundamentally wrong. And I think that's more wrong than any collateral damage that could come along with letting somebody transfer without restrictions. And so I, I don't, again, I won't be so naive as to suggest it wouldn't create another problem somewhere, but to me, it wouldn't create another problem somewhere that's as large as the problem that exists right now, which is 
in 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 cases all over this country, and it's, you know, um, um, most recently this one in Alabama, um, a, a an unpaid amateur athlete um, is being, for lack of a better word, and and please take it with a loose definition, is being held hostage uh, by a basketball coach. I, I think that is wrong, and and and. Uh, you can't get past, in my head, you can't get past that point. That is wrong. Let's fix that yeah. problem. And if we have other problems, then we'll figure, we'll do our best to figure those out. But, but let's not, let's not keep that bad um, system in place because we're worried about, rightfully or wrongfully, we're worried about what, what doing away with it might, might create. And I, it, I, I don't care what it might create. Um, I, I just know that this is wrong, and, and I'll, I'll yell that forever. And, and before I move on to the next note here, uh, there, are, there are two patterns here that I'm waiting for college basketball coaches to break that we've seen basically over the half, past half decade or not longer. We've got um, uh, you know, alleged physical and verbal abuse. You know, Like clockwork, over the past few years, we've had a coach uh, either be fired or be suspended because of this. And you know, between Daisha Simmons and Phil Martelli and Bo Ryan with the Jared Uthoff transfer to Iowa, just to name a few, um, there's only a few. Every offseason, we see a situation where a coach is blocked a transfer. It's become uh, a national headline, created issues for that coach and for that program and a bad look. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to hopefully um, those two trends kind of stopping because there's really no reason for either of them to exist. And, and beyond all that, just to bottom line it, um, if you're a coach and you're thinking about restricting, even if you think you're fundamentally right, which, which again, I'll repeat, I think you're fundamentally wrong. I think you're on the wrong side of it always. I don't need to know the details. Restricting an unpaid, student, an unpaid amateur student athlete is wrong, regardless of the details in my head. But even if you disagree with that premise – Understand this going forward. You're going to be the one who takes a beating over this. You are not going to hurt that student athlete as much as you're going to hurt your own brand mm -hmm. and your own program. And Alabama is a recent is the most recent example of that. So even if you and I, some coach, totally disagree on on the, the premise, understand that it doesn't matter in the long run. You're going to end up looking bad if you try to restrict. Uh, so you probably shouldn't. Another note, uh, I guess national headline from earlier this week, Kedron Johnson a uh, former Vanderbilt player got a waiver to play immediately at Memphis, which is huge for the Tigers because uh, I don't know how well you know their roster, but um, without Kedron Johnson, literally zero guards who have ever played one minute at the Division I level. Uh, is this give Memphis an opportunity to, to make the NCAA tournament for a fifth straight year, uh, Kedron Johnson being eligible to immediately? Uh, I really think it does. You know, I, I actually finished um, our AAC conference preview yesterday, and I had Memphis third in the league. That's fair. I, I'm tempted, but with Kedron, you know, he was he was a quality guy at uh, at Vanderbilt. And by the way, this is a, a complete um, turnaround for Memphis from what they were last year when they had, you know, the four-guard veteran yeah. look, and they were, you know, so well-prepared and, and that kind of avenue. For a passer not to have that, Plenty of rightful worry. Uh, Gary would know it better than anyone, having, you know, doing a radio show and living in Memphis and knowing what that fan base and expectations are about. Uh, Shaq Goodwin is, is obviously a quality big man who they're going to really lean on and I think can be an all league player there. But with no help in the backcourt, um, were they going to have enough? With Kedron, I think it's possible. I mean, he averaged, I don't, he averaged double figures. I don't 13 and a half. 13 and yeah, a half. Yeah, yeah. So he was, he was, he was a solid, a solid guy to get him eligible this year, I think is pretty important for Memphis's. Yes. NCAA tournament hopes. I think you can consider them to have a decent shot now. I think he's that 
competent and good and will, and will mean that much to them. And, you know, now I think it, it makes the AAC more of a three-horse race with UConn and SMU. Who do you got winning that league, SMU or UConn? I got, yeah, I do have UConn. That's fair. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's debatable. I think you've got, it is. you could reasonably pick any of those three teams. And, and, and I think certainly uh, reasonably pick between SMU and UConn. And it would have been SMU if Moutier was there, who's sure. obviously in China. He's that good of a point guard. With no Moutier, it, it creates a little bit more of a, a debatable situation. But, um, yeah, man, that, that league will be interesting at the top. It, it should be a three-team race, I would think. I think Cincinnati is going to take a, a big dip, actually. But, uh, but yeah, I, I went with uh, with Ollie and UConn and, and Boatwright. They get Rodney Purvis eligible again. But, hey, listen, good for Memphis. They needed that. I mean, I really think that, that – you touched on it. I really think Johnson's eligibility is the difference between them saying let's make a tournament and, and rather than just hoping it. I think that's a reasonable expectation now. A third note, so I wrote earlier this week about the NCAA genuinely considering, is my understanding, uh, moving the first four out of Dayton. Um, uh, Sioux Falls is uh, apparently the biggest competition because they built a really nice facility. And frankly, I'm told they're willing to pay money. Like uh, they're, they're putting money where you know, on the table. And, and yeah. that's how they're getting Wichita State and Memphis are actually playing there next uh, next month. Uh, it's, it's just strictly a money deal. Greg Marshall had no desire to play in Sioux Falls. Josh Pastner had no desire to play in Sioux Falls. But Sioux Falls is 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 doing all the things necessary to, to make these events possible. They've got this nice arena and they want to hold events in it. Um, I get all that. I, I don't guess it's bad to weigh all your options. But w- this seems like a classic you know, trying to fix something that, that, that so clearly isn't broken. That Dayton first four actually outdraws, you know, I don't, want to, I don't know if it's most. I don't, I don't want to overstate it. But certainly a, a significant portion of actually round of 64 and round of 32 sites. The way that city and community have supported that event, um, it just seems insane to move it, given that, okay, it is four games. Let's be honest. Two of them are, are completely bum games that nobody cares about. And yet that arena is, is, is completely filled. Um, if not completely, certainly mostly filled. And that could, you know, I just don't know why you would, that seems to work so perfectly. I'm not sure it would work perfectly other places. And until it stops working perfectly, I, I wouldn't even think, so I wouldn't even seriously think about moving it. Why are they doing that? Uh, I've got a, a few thoughts on this. First off, shout out to my South Dakota followers because I actually was like, I'm I'm for moving it, but not to South Dakota. And then I had a few people be like, here's why they should have it there. I'll get to that in a second. Sure. Dayton, I, it's fine, I guess. And now listen, I've never gone and covered the event. You have. Hold Borzello on, let me tweet that. Hold on, let me tweet that quote. Uh, Dayton, it's fine, I guess, said Matt Norlander. Uh, you know what? That could <laughs> that could be the city motto, and I'm sure plenty of people from Dayton would be cool with me saying that, okay? That would, that would be a great a great city motto. Dayton, as you, as fine, you enter, yeah, as you enter and, and see the sign on the side of the road, uh, you know, italics and everything. Um, Dayton, it's fine. It's, listen, guess. they support it. It's clear that they have. Uh, it's been there for a while. I'm of the philosophy that you know what it would be kind of cool if you if you spread it around um, and at least did a, a, a trial couple of years and see if it was successful in other places and kind of always kept Dayton in the cycle. Uh, what I would like to see, and it, this wasn't even my idea, um, I can't remember who thought of it first or where I first saw it. 
and it's not practical and it's never going to happen. But I actually thought it'd be cool if you did it in uh, Cameron one year, the Palestra one year, and you put it in like historic college basketball barns. You would give the first four even a little bit more of a cool flavor to it. I think that'd be awesome. Because uh, kids could say, hey, I got to play in Cameron or I got to play in. Yeah, that might be cool. And you know what? Those yeah, And those cool. places, like, don't tell me Philly doesn't love college basketball. It clearly does. It would pack, they would pack the place. Um, there might be some logistical things there, but you know what? I, I think it could be accomplished. As for South Dakota, my argument against South Dakota is, and this is kind of what I, this might be an inside baseball kind of deal, but I'm telling you, the reason why the first four in part gets a lot of, of press and media there is because that site is always within a 90 minute or less drive of the first weekend sites. With South Dakota, you've yeah. got to take a flight. I'm telling you. I'm just telling you, you'll have beat writers there, and that's about it. Because you know what? In this day and age, for companies to send their sports writers to things, it, it's not the, the budgets are not as uh, as loose as they once were. It's not near anything. I'm sure that Sioux Falls can have a great, great first four. And if you want to try it there, that's fine. But I'm telling you, the media presence, and that means the NCAA likes that when it can bring people in to cover this event it's something that they have a lot of uh stubborn pride behind and uh and i get that totally but south dakota I, I, for people that live there they they don't think it's out of the way i'm just telling you it's out of the way no, it's it, listen I've, I've i've covered the first four maybe twice certainly once because i remember exactly to your point i you know i was at the first four and it was in dayton and then i woke up the next morning and i drove to columbus which is where the round of 64 and round of 32 was and yeah um the great thing about dayton is it is always going to be within driving distance of um of a of a, a round of 64 round of 32 site and that makes it much easier for people who have our jobs um yes to to to, to do both um certainly like it, tennessee was in the first four last year the tennessee beat writers are going to be there whether it's in dayton or sioux falls um iowa same deal right but but if you're looking for um people who do our jobs to 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 attend these types of events um so you don't have to cater to us, but but it, it it makes more sense if it's easier to to get from one place to the other. In other words, if you told me, hey, you got to go to Sioux Falls and then catch a flight and then go to wherever, or you can just go to Dayton and then drive over to Columbus, you know that that, that there's an obviously easier and and again to underline a point uh, less expensive option there. And um, I, I think the NCAA would be wise to at least consider that as well. Nothing against Sioux Falls. I'm sure the people are great. I'm sure the arena is beautiful. Um, but I'm not certain that the first four would be supported all over the country the way it's supported in Dayton. And until Dayton uh, does something to lose that, I, I would prefer um, it stay there. Remember, today's Ion College Basketball Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, where um, you can easily create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace is constantly improving its platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you want some help, uh, they got an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It all starts at just $8 a month, and that includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, uh, meaning your content will look great on every device every single time. So go ahead and launch a free trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. Again, when you sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code FUN to get 10% off and to show your support for the Ion College Basketball Podcast. That's Squarespace, everything uh, you need to create an exceptional website. So let's wrap this up here by talking about something I found interesting. I've been saying for a while uh, that Kentucky would be the consensus number one, and I still think that's probably true, and yet... 
um, you know, I went to the uh, local pharmacy and picked up some preseason magazines, and I believe it's Sporting News that actually has Arizona as the preseason number one. So is this not as clear-cut, Matt, as I, as I thought it might be? Maybe not. Uh, I thought you were going to say Duke because I I'm going to pick Duke as the, as the as my preseason number one. But maybe not, and maybe that's in part because we've seen you know uh, for Kentucky making three of the past four Final Fours, winning a national title in there, making last year's title game. Um, maybe because that they've been I don't know they've been erratic in some in some sort of ways. Uh, maybe we're a little more hesitant, and that's a good lesson to learn, by the way. I mean. Listen, a year ago this time, people just ridiculously talking undefeated seasons, and it was stupid from the start. But at least we don't have that this year, um, and that's good. We should we should not put all this expectation on Kentucky every single season because it's impossible for that team to live up to it when you're dealing with, you know, as I like to say, horny young guys, man. You know what it is, uh, 18, 19-year-old kids. They're just unpredictable. Yes, they've got a lot of talent, but um, – you know, losses will come. So I, I'm going to have no qualms if we end up having Kentucky as our number one preseason team on CBSSports.com. I think that's totally um, realistic to say the very least. But I think if you want to consider as Arizona or a Duke, I think those are the two clear-cut teams that have a right to be in that conversation. And I like that. I do. I prefer – for as much as, as it's great to have one clear-cut team where we've got a lot of uh, anticipation about what they can do, I'm always in favor of having two or three truly in the conversation where we don't really know fully uh, how, how things are going to shake out at the very top. So if you want to stump for uh, Zona uh, or the Blue Devils, I think that's totally fine. I think that's fine, too. Like, listen, I, I think I'm leaning toward Kentucky because the talent is overwhelming and the experience is also in place, which is – uh, uncommon for that program in recent years. But, I mean, you look at Arizona's roster. I mean, that's certainly a national championship caliber roster. You look at Duke's roster, um, the parts around Okafor and the idea um, to really loop this back around to the top, that he could be the, um, you know, the best player in college basketball, most dominant, certainly. Um, you could make a case for Duke. So um, it is interesting. I think you've got not only three, and let's throw Wisconsin up there. They could they could be in the conversation as well. Um, you know, programs that could legitimately um, look at themselves as true national title contenders. But it's it also happens to be um, you know historically rich programs. I mean, when you're talking about Kentucky, Duke, and Arizona, maybe a one, two, three. Um, that's that's really really strong. So it should be a fun year. Like I said at the top, a little more than five weeks away. Uh, it seems like uh, seems like forever, but it'll be here before we know it. Okay, I've kept you long enough. As always, thanks to Matt Norlander. As always, I uh, really do appreciate you guys being here at CBSSports.com, listening to the podcast, reading what we write, watching our videos, interacting with us on Twitter. Remember, you can subscribe to the On College Basketball Podcast at iTunes. That's the quickest way to get your hands on the latest. So make sure to do that. It's free, and free is good. And thank you for listening again. Uh, to the Iron College Basketball Podcast. We really, we really do appreciate it, and I will talk to you again very, very soon.